Welcome to Toxicology, brought to you by Recovery Unplugged, the place where we talk about all things substance abuse, recovery, and mental health, with guests offering varying perspectives and viewpoints. Hosts Joseph Gorordo and Jason Cabello share about their addiction and recovery and other serious subject matter through lighthearted yet candid conversation. I, I don't want any conflict today. Just go ahead and take it, please. I'm right. tired. Welcome to Toxicology. <laughs> My name is Joseph Gordo. I'm your host, and this is my co-host with the most, Mr. Jason Cabello. Welcome to the uh, latest and greatest podcast on the internet about recovery, mental health, and addiction. We're on the internet? Yeah. I mean, well, Shit. at this point, the internet is everything, right? Like, remember when you used to go, you'd be like, oh, I'm going on the web, you guys. Yeah. And it's like, no, you're just... On everything is it's in everything. Yeah, if you turn on your phone, it's uh, you don't even have to turn your phone on. It's already on. You're getting notifications yeah. constantly, all the time from the web. Yeah, it's kind of bonkers. It is if you really think about it. Do you embrace technology? I do, but I have a love hate relationship with it. Yeah, I like gadgets. I like gizmos. I, I like gadgets, little gizmos. techie things, but I also am at times disgusted with the uh, amount of, uh, you know, just like all the information they have on us and how willingly. I turn it over. So had I not, you know, completely fucked my life up and like lost everything, I'd probably be still into like vintage synthesizers, vinyl records. Yes. But I lost all that shit. So it's like I can't, you know, I I can't go back and get the the record collection that I had because I mean it it, it probably could have filled half this wall, but I, I, it's all gone. We've never talked about the record collection I inherited from my father. Who he's still alive, so I don't know if it's still an inheritance. But, but I got his records and when I was a kid, and he had a lot of stuff. Very wide variety of music from, I mean, Cheech and Chong and Monty Python albums to uh, Thriller, Robert Frampton. Uh, you know, Peter Moody. Frampton. <laughs> Peter Frampton. <laughs> yeah. Robert Frampton? Robert Palmer, Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton comes alive. That was yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he had this great record. He had like first first pressing Bob Marley songs, all uh, records, all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, you know, I found the one place in San Antonio, Texas, that would buy used vinyl and sold so much of it. Yeah, well, like you, I inherited, and you know, my parents were in the music business, so I mean, their their record collection was vast, and um, I did sell a lot of the records. But um, my ex-wife <laughs> took everything. Wait, and, wait, and, wait, 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 wait. Ex-wife? Yeah. I don't talk about it much. This is the first time in fucking five years that I've known you. It's, uh, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I, I, Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Cabello was married. At yeah, one point. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think it should have been. Um, <laughs> legally bound, judging on how how fucked up I was at the time. How long we'll, were you we'll married? Just leave it at that. Um, we weren't married for very long. We uh, we got married. I painted myself into a corner, and everything just went to shit. And it was just you know, it it just wasn't a good. It wasn't a good situation all this is around. Like the Vegas most politician Jason Cabello response. Well, it, it, you know, it 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 is just because it was it was, you know, I did shitty things, and I was nowhere 
near in a place to make any kind of decision, like a long-term decision yeah. like that to bring somebody else into it. And it just was like, you know, I, it's, yeah. it, and. wild. Yeah. I just. And, you know, and it, and, and it, it, you know, what's funny too, and this is a good thing about recovery, because at one point that was a huge part of my story and like what I held on to and like. And now it's just like know somebody for five years and we fucking hang out and yeah. we have a podcast yeah. together. And if if you didn't know, then it's clearly something that, you know, that I, I've moved past. I've moved past yeah. And, you know, hope she's doing well. And uh, that's it. That's wild. Yeah. And I don't have any records anymore. So, yeah. well, you know. Okay, Jason, no wife, no records, but you do have sponsees. Oh, Jesus, yeah. How are the sponsees? <sighs> I wasn't even going to say sponsors. I was just going to say somebody who I who I'm trying to help. And for for our non, you know, for for Susan or whatever her name is out in, in Ohio, um, a sponsee is is a term used in twelve step fellowships for for when someone who has been sober and worked a program for a while starts to walk another person through the steps. Yeah. So somebody, you know, somebody who I've been trying to help for a little while. I've known him for a couple of years, and you know, we were we were friends first, and then took on the 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 sponsee sponsor relationship and much like I was for many many years just can't stay clean and it's like you know it's so hard when you get to that point where you're like I understand like I don't judge you but you know like I can't co-sign your bullshit because it's to the point where he wants to like uh, use me as kind of an alibi and mm. you know he his family's gotten involved with me. Like he, his fam, like some of his family members will call and I'm not going to call them and be like, Hey, look, he, he relapsed again. Like that, that's not my job, yeah. my, my job. And you know, I tell him like, so there's a couple things that I will not do with the sponsee. I'm like, you can't call me for a place to stay. If you fuck up, you can't ask me for money and you can't use me as an alibi. I'm here to help you to try to, if like you get kicked out of where you're at and you need a ride to go to treatment or something like that, call me for that. You need a burger. You, you, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll take, I'll take you grocery shop. Don't ask me, but I'll, t you know what I mean? If I, <laughs> if I, if I know that you don't have any food in your fridge or something, I'll most likely do it. And you know, and it's, uh, it, it's, it, it gets hard because you have to let somebody kind of, find their way and sometimes it's you you have to just you could only you they have to want it yeah. and they have to work for it for and they sure. have to chase it like they chase you know and it's just like the, the one bad decision that like could just ruin everything and it's you know he, he's like i don't want to lose everything and i'm like so real re i understand what everything is to you right now. But let's fast forward to Carlo with five years clean. Yeah. And you look back at what losing everything looks like right yeah. now. Living in a halfway house, taking a bus to a job that you don't care about, that, you know, it, it's paying the bills, but, it, you know, it's not a career that you love. It's not something that you really, I would, I would, you know, and he's like, what do you suggest? I'm like, find a long-term place to go to. Maybe yeah. like a Salvation Army or something. And Yeah. The best I could do right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. We talk about uh, something called loving detachment, right? Where like it's like I love you, but you gotta kind of go do your thing, and I'm here when you're ready. Right. And even as a clinician and someone who's worked in treatment for almost 15 years at this point, like it's very easy to give that advice, but practicing it is is still always a challenge. You know, right. um, whether it's family members, sponsees, you know, 
all that kind of stuff. So yeah, but you know what it does do is it does keeps you sober. It makes me grateful that I'm clean and I'm like, because I know that feeling. I know, yeah. and it's like a pattern with him. So it's like I couldn't get it. I couldn't, you know, because I tried to call him after I went to a meeting last night and phone rang and then went to voicemail. So I know I got the fuck you button Ooh. and that's not, that's not what he would do ever. Yeah. And I just like, I, w- I told Gabby, I'm like, he's, I think he's out there. Yeah. She's like, I'm sorry. I'm like, yeah, what are you going to do? So it's tough, but you know, you got to let somebody find their way. And I woke up clean Yeah. and I know that that's waiting for me out there every single day. And it's an option for me. Like I could go and feel that way yes. right now. Yeah. Maybe not right now. I could go. F- I could go feel however I'm going to feel for a couple of days, and then I'll be able to feel that like I'm about to lose everything because that's Ugh. relative. Everything Ooh. is relative, yeah. you know. And, and my losing everything is worth a little bit more than a bad decision. Like yeah. I'm going to your favorite. I'm going to play the tape all the way through, and I know <laughs> that in, that's not going to be in, good. In the words of uh, the great Lauren Hill, everything is everything relative right yeah um anyway should we get to our guest um i think i want to before we oh, get you to the guest real quick yeah david crosby yeah Saw david crosby night. one of the first people who i knew their name you know before you ever met him no no but i think my mom might have um i'm pretty sure my mom has but one of the first people that i heard was sober and i'm like I don't, what is that? Oh, he was in the program? He oh, was shit, yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. No. There, there's a great Simpsons episode where, you know, the, the lawyer, Lionel Hutz, uh, it was played by Phil Hartman. He's in, like, the courtroom, okay. and somebody starts talking about whiskey, and then he runs He runs to the payphone, and he calls, and it's his sponsor, and it's David Crosby, and he picks up the phone. <laughs> he's like, I love you, man. And then he comes later, and Barney, you know, the drunk. Yeah, yeah, He was like, David Crosby, you're my hero. And he's... <laughs> And he's like, oh, you like my music? And he's like, you're a musician? <laughs> but yeah, David Crosby has no a... Uh, he was, and he was a self-proclaimed speedball freak. Speedball freak. Uh, yeah, as as I was. And um, yeah, he's been... He was what so, do you consider a speedball to be? Uh, crack and heroin. It was what I used, but it, it's co- co- cocaine, cocaine and heroin. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, that was, that was my cocktail. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. <laughs> speaking of Kraken hair on that positive <laughs> note. Speaking of Kraken, no, no, I, I, actually, I, I don't know. Yeah, we'll find out. We're gonna find out. Okay. Um. So today's guest, I'm actually really excited for today's guest because so often we have people on where it's like, hey, you know, I've known you for a while, and I like, I don't know anything about your story. Um, and this is a person I've actually known for, for I, I guess like 13, 14 years, and and got oh, to. Okay. Uh, uh, be present and witness certain parts, you know, sometimes closer or further away. But um, someone who I'm very happy is, is coming on today and is, is uh, in the place that they are today in their lives. Can't wait. And I've been trying to get her on the show for months, I know. I know. but uh, she's super busy, right? Because she is a therapist, a person in recovery. She is uh, an advocate for mental health and eating disorders. Um, she is involved in that community. Um, and uh, what else? What else? Uh, and, and her name is Nikki Dubois. <laughs> 
Hey, Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. It's nice meeting you as well. How long have we actually known each other? It's like 14, 13, 14, somewhere in there? 2008 is when we met. Wow. Were you part of the Kerrville Sober Crew? His wife was my first sponsor. Yeah. 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 That was back when Chelsea didn't drink. Yeah, I was 21. No, I was 20. I was yeah. 20 when I yeah. first it, got sober. Uh, before the before you got here, me and Jason were talking, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, our guest today is this, this woman, Nikki Dubois. And I was like, it was it was weird even referring to you as a woman. Woman, yeah. Because I was like, <laughs> when I met Nikki. Because we're both little ninos. Yeah. Yes. No, I mean, for perspective, uh, I guess New Year's 2008 going into 2009 Nikki was in the sober house my wife was running and was on punishment. She was not allowed to go out. What'd you do? I just wasn't the best, uh, (laughs) (laughs) on my best behavior. I was 20. (laughs) So we spent New Year's at the sober house babysitting, Uh and there was another girl too. Yeah. Uh, And I think we like watched horror movies and. That was it. That was New Year's. Haley. 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 Yes. Wait, Haley B? I don't. She's sober in in San Antonio now. She's an LCDC. Yes, Haley B. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw her at a conference recently, and I was like, "Holy shit! It's wild. You're not dead." We need need to do a documentary (laughs) piece, like a take you back to Kerrville and like film like your your whole like. This is where I first, you know, this was my first job here after I got sober, and this is where my my sober living house or not. I, I think you might also be the first guest that I've ever met their mom. (laughs) <laughs> i joke about like my therapist friends when they i'm like when you meet my mom it will just like all fall into place like, I'm like ah yes i understand such a wonderful woman i love my mom yeah. and- her mom's great um but yeah so uh <clears throat> let's let's start at the beginning do you have any uh former marriages that I, we don't know about i don't know no i've been married y'all yeah i've made it to 34 yeah. without yeah. getting married. I, you know what? When I don't really think I was. I think I might have imagined some of it. It's just such a blur and so far back. Like, we'll just, yeah. Anyway, moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess, uh, you know, one thing that that I love about your story is that, like, there were all these starts and stops. And, and it you know, it wasn't easy for a long time. But you... At least from me outside looking, I never saw a moment where you kind of like stopped trying to get better in yeah. some way. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't need to tell your story. Let's, let's, let's you know. Yeah. Uh, Joseph, why don't you tell what that story? I, t- I, don't know. I don't know. It's weird for me. It's weird for me. Uh, I don't know why. Nikki's got me nervous. I know you're like, palms are all so Yeah. <laughs> He's never been nervous before. We've known each other for so long. Yeah. And like, I. Back in the day, I mean, like, I was driving like a 1996 Chevy Cavalier. Listen to Kid Rock. Listening to Kid Rock. No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> what was I was real into? Uh, what was I into back then? Oh, that was back when the Lil Wayne mixtapes were mm, still just oh, like crushing. Fire. Yeah. yeah, and like I worked at a Denny's. You know. <laughs> 
I never even had to apply for that job, which is so funny. You just walked in and there like, The owner not. or the manager was Iranian and I'm Iranian. Abe. And Abe. yeah, just I was there a yeah. lot because I mean I didn't have a lot going on in my yeah. life then. Um so I hung out at Denny's. Yeah. So it's like you want a job. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, sure. So <laughs> uh, three jobs. So Growing up, we already said, you know, you have a great relationship with your mom today. Yeah. You love your mom. She's a yeah. wonderful woman. Yeah. Like, but what was life like growing up? I mean, yeah. you're Iranian and yeah. and your mom is Scottish? Iran. No, she has an British. English accent because she learned English in England. That's she went to why. boarding okay. school. Yeah. Okay. She's from Iran. Yeah. Uh, I my being dad. Real throat off. Yeah. People are like, oh, what? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad's American. Um, growing up, I don't speak Farsi. The rest of my family does. Um, so I always kind of felt othered, which I think, like, has been, like, a just a theme that I've felt in my life. Yeah. Um, and it played into substance use and my eating disorder of just not feeling like I fit in. Um, I moved from Austin to New Braunfels in second grade, which was culture shock for me. Uh, I remember being like, oh, what's country? I had no idea what country music was. Yeah. I listened to classic rock only. I mean, that's not the only culture shock. but You don't don't meet many people from Austin. I know. A unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. When I tell people that, they're like, oh, what high school did you go to? And I have to do this like weird backtrack. I'm like, well, I was born here, but oh, I moved. Me too. Yeah. So me and Chelsea were both born in Austin, but like Chelsea went to school, school here, here and I, I did know. not. I know. And Chelsea's like, don't fucking tell people that. Yeah. I know. It's real weird when I meet someone who's actually from Austin. I'm like, shit. I didn't go to high school here. Yeah, yeah that happens. I'm from Chicago, and, like, I will meet people all the time, and they're like, yeah, Chicago, this Chicago. Like, oh, where in Chicago are you from? Well, I'm actually from Gary, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> but I ate a lot of pizza growing up. Right. right. Um, so so going from Austin, going to New Braunfels, you know, I mean, do you, you know, talking about that othered, yeah. Thing. So so did that even make it like you were the city girl in the country? <laughs> I don't know if I felt that, but I remember when we joined, my elementary was small. When we joined with our intermediate school, it was all the other elementaries. I remember all of the popular girls, this is so weird. I'm not that dark skinned, but I remember all of them were really pale and had colored eyes. Yeah. And I just remember like... This is obviously my eating disorder stuff coming up at a very young age, just comparing myself to all these other people around me. And I remember wanting to bleach my skin. Oh. And that even came even further after 9-11. I was like, I really don't want to be associated with being Middle Eastern. And I could imagine like seeing like Barbies and dolls and things like that, all with the blonde hair and blue eyes. Just like inclusivity now that we didn't have growing up. Well, you know what's funny though is is like we hear because I was actually at Target the other day and Disney just came out with a line of like Disney princess inspired teenager looking dolls, right? Like so and and they're all different shades of the rainbow. And there was a group of people saying they're like, why did they do that to Belle? And they were talking like not super negative, but a little negative. Yeah. And like, why do they have to do that? Like, why are they trying to be so woke or whatever? Yeah. And it's like, because there's little girls. Yeah, yeah. Who, <laughs> I got to be Jasmine, thankfully. Yeah. So ja- Jasmine. <laughs> I'm not Arabian, but I was like, well, it's a close enough princess. Yeah, we, we know who you're playing in the school play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so moving was hard. I didn't think it would be, but looking back, I'm like, yeah, that was really a pivotal point in my life at second grade. I remember focusing on my body a lot in second grade. And I even found this little thing that a little booklet that we had to do in second grade. And 
it asked us to say like what our favorite thing was about ourselves. And I said my face and my clothes. I was like, oh, good. This has been a constant in my life. But it said my least favorite thing was my body Yeah. in second grade. Oh. It's so sad. And no one even like that would have been a red flag. Like to me, that's a huge red flag that got missed by all the teachers that saw it, my parents that saw it. Yeah. No one put me in therapy or like talked to me about it or did anything. They just gave you a B. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that is yeah, sad B. <laughs> so so it seems like like the 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 body issues, the body image stuff came even before the substance abuse. It was oh, probably like yes. maybe the 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 inception points of <laughs> All the yeah, issues that came yeah. after. Yes. Do you do you, now? Where did that come from, though? Like, or I mean, obviously it's hard to say, right? But like, yeah. Did that come internally? Was it like you know, little Billy in third grade was like, "You're fat," and that was it, or like, do you, I don't know. I think, um, I, you know, I teach this right to my. I work with adolescents, and so I talk to them, and a lot of them want to focus on. Where did this come from? Like, I want to know the focal point of the when it started. And it's not possible to yeah. find out. And so when I think about it, looking back, I'm like, well, I was a very sensitive kid. I feel emotions really strongly. And I think that I was new in a school and it just was a thing that happened where I started like comparing myself. We do that, yeah. you know, but I hyper fixated on like what the differences were about me. And those became things that I continued to focus on as I continued to grow. And kids are mean. I was not in a larger body as a kid, but yeah. people will make jokes and comments. And, you know, those tended to stick with me more. And I think they probably stuck with other kids. Yeah. For sure. So w one thing I recently talked about, actually, with the sponsee. I have a sponsee. No, but, uh, um, with sponsee was like, you know, mental health issues and substance abuse issues, like are issues that will get addressed, whether you're trying to or not, either in healthy or unhealthy ways. Right. Yeah. So so looking back at that, you know, starting in, se in second grade. Right. When how do you think they first started to get addressed? Like, how did you first start kind of coping yeah. with that avoidance? I my parents, they have a great relationship now, but it was very tumultuous growing up. And I used to hide in my closet when they'd fight and read books. So I was trying to find ways to escape at an early age, and reading was my first escape. I also, Middle Eastern culture, if you don't get seconds on a meal, then there's something wrong. Like, you're offending them because the food wasn't good. Really? Yeah. Or I like this. Yeah, or you're sick. There's something wrong. Yeah. So at an early age, I was taught not to listen to my hunger and fullness cues because I was going to offend my relatives yeah. by not getting food. I also must have discovered that food was a way that made me feel better. So I would eat additionally when I was, you know, feeling scared or feeling upset. Um, and that just continued to progress. I had a friend who, this is wild, who taught me how to purge, which I didn't know what to, that was um, at 15. And that's really when my eating disorder like fully kicked off. Before it was I would like track, it's sad, I look at these journals back in the day and I was like looking through for like some gold material of like, oh, this is such like a teenage moment of me being like, oh, I hate my parents. But I looked back in them and they were like, I walked extra today or I ate really well today. And I was like, so oh, not sad. like today. Billy smiled at me. No, it was me no, tracking my food journal. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. We were talking about like technology and how like I love technology, but also grosses me out. Yeah. Like. 
But think about it like you talk about being a little girl and tracking, you know, your exercise and your calories, but now that is the norm, mm-hmm. right? Like if if I work out and for some reason can't log it in my tracker, it's like a like therapy, right? Like if if you didn't write a note, it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like if if uh, when I was like real into running, like if I didn't have my Apple Watch 24/7 to track every single fucking step, you know? Yeah. But like yeah, this this like Hyper focus on doing and being and producing. Anyway, sorry, total yeah. aside. <laughs> no, no, it really it is. It, um, my niece got a Fitbit for Christmas one year, and I really was trying to push back against it because eating disorders yeah. tend to run how, in families. How old was she? she was eleven at the time. Yeah. <clears throat> and you're like, listen, y'all, this is what I do. I know. I'm like, like, please don't do this. Um, so I tried. They were gonna do it. So I tried to find like I found the kid version, which is a little less um, diety, I think. Um, and it still tracks the steps. Like that's the purpose of it, right? And it's it's sad that we've gotten to a place where play is not intuitive and it's not fun. It's like. No, you have to walk a certain amount of steps. Like that is something that you have to do as a kid. And even my nephew, who's he's eight now, nine now, um, he even talks about like, oh, I didn't get my steps in. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why is that? <laughs> Can we go play outside? Yeah. Like, yeah. why have we as a society moved to like, we need to track these things in kids? Because then it goes into adulthood, right? right? Of like this message of like, I have to do this amount of fitness and working out to be like a good person. It's really good for uh, self-depreciation and imposter syndrome. Is like, it? For, yo, <laughs> just wonders, wonders for my mental health. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So eating disorder really kicks off high school when your friend teaches you. Yeah, it was her birthday and we went to Macaroni Grill and... Which later in life, when I went to Eating Disorder Treatment Center, I told them this. And one of the outings that we had to go to was Macaroni Grill. And I was like, oh, this Full is circle. tragic. Yeah. Did <laughs> they do that on purpose? Like, I like think we're that it was already something that they had done in their rotation. And it was just perfect exposure for yeah. me to go back to that place. Um yeah, she. we had her birthday dinner, and then she, you know, as kids, like, let's go to the bathroom. So we went to the bathroom, and she was like, I'm going to purge, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw up. And I was like, I don't, why? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she told me that she eats and then throws up. And she actually doesn't struggle with an eating disorder anymore. I think this was, it didn't grasp her as it yeah. grasped me. Um, so I started doing that at 15, and I wasn't very good at hiding it. Um but my parents didn't really notice, I guess. And for a while, that really stuck with me. And I had a lot of resentments. Like, why didn't y'all notice? Yeah, why didn't y'all? It's clearly a cry for help. Yeah. Like, I was not very good at cleaning up. And so it's just like, y'all had to have noticed. And I don't think they actually did. I think that parents tend to be, you know, want to assume the best. And they no one wants to assume that their kid has an eating disorder or substance use because I struggled with substance use and yeah. they didn't really notice either. I mean, as a parent now, you know, like when my kids get in trouble or we catch them doing something, like, like I always want to think the best and I always find myself trying to make like justifications for them. And, yeah. and Chelsea is much more of like, no, he's fucking stupid. <laughs> like, you know? But I just, you know, so I, I, I get it. If yeah. they did see some signs and kind of were like, oh no. Yeah. So who was the first adult that you remember 
uh, noticed or said something to you or voiced concern? Uh, about the eating disorder? It was when I was in college, when I was already sober. Wow. Yeah. I um, was at Texas Tech for their sober program, and her name is Michelle, and I let her know how much I appreciate her now, but then I hated her. I was so mad. I had dropped a lot of weight from my eating disorder after Kerrville, and I got you know, complimented a lot for it. People didn't know that I had an you eating disorder. You felt good. You're looking good. Yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, like doctors, like my friends, guys were paying more attention to me that weren't previously. And um, she, we were eating, and it was, it was all sober people, and I was, like, picking apart my, my meal, and I saw her look at me, and that were was, you, like, the moment I was like, oh, God. Were you doing <laughs> she that knows. thing where, like, you pick it apart so it looks like you ate more than you actually I did? I think I was, like, trying to take off, like, certain items that I felt were, like, unhealthy for. And so I was, like, taking off. I don't even remember what the meal was. I know it was a sandwich. So I was just picking it apart to, like, eat the parts that I felt were healthy for me. But so she locks eyes with you. Yeah, and my heart dropped because I, I knew that she was in recovery for an eating disorder. Okay. And I was like, oh, fuck. She knows. <laughs> and she came up and talked to me. And it was just a substance use. I guess we had some people with self-harm recovery program. And they were starting an eating disorder um, group within it. And I had to join it at that point. And I was so angry. You got voluntold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I wasn't with my substance use pals anymore. And we used to make fun of eating disorders because we didn't really understand it. Because we were like, yeah, we're here for drugs and alcohol. So, um, so when you were making fun of the eating disorders, did you know in the back of your head that you had one or were you in some kind of denial? So. Around yeah, it? I was in denial. I thought it was like something that people just did. Um, and the things that I was doing at that point were like what I think the sober community kind of tends to do. Like I was exercising and I was, you know, eating smaller portions and trying to be really healthy. Trying to hit your water goal. Yeah. So I felt like these were things that were promoted. Um, and I think a lot of people in the substance use have disordered eating, if not full-blown eating disorders. So, oh, man, body dysmorphia with the dudes. Ooh. I'm the worst. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 yeah. Well, so, so we kind of skipped ahead a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we totally But, did. you know, so, so um, when did substances first enter the picture in a problematic way? I started using when I was 16. I remember the person that I first used with— she was really into, like, taking people on their first journey. And so she would clip people's hair. It's so weird. I don't know if this is going to make the podcast. <laughs> but she would clip their hair. And she had these Ziploc bags on her wall of, like, people's hair that she had, like, gotten high with for the first time. And that's so what? bizarre. I know. How's she doing now? <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's hard to find her. Um, <laughs> I don't know what, what she's up to. I know she's a kid now, so I don't know. Um, so when I started, I was 16, and it didn't get, like, super problematic until college. I was uh, a freshman in college. So a lot of people experiment in high school. A lot mm -hmm. of people party. I mean, experiment in college. A lot of people party too much in college. Yeah. There, there are a lot of folks who— like absolutely meet criteria for substance use disorders mm -hmm. that like they graduate and they're like, oh, well, done with that part of my life. Time to grow up. Yeah. And they just kind of, yeah. now you were not that. So when no. did you realize that you were not that? <laughs> um, I was enrolled in school, but I was not going at all. Um, I was selling plasma to like 
get drugs, which I would ride my bike to the plasma place. I don't know why. I think because it was like, oh, I'm healthy. (laughs) And then I would come home and there were some times where I just pass out because I shouldn't have been doing. You should be doing that kind of exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I was doing it for, you know, for alcohol and drug money. Um, Both expensive. More so now, but yeah, this was 2006. So it was just the amount of coke you need to get through a day. For sure. It's just much more than, let's say, heroin. And I wasn't, I realized, I thought, because I always had people around me partying, so I didn't think it was an issue. And then I got academic probation, then suspension. And I was like, how are my friends not, how are they doing okay? And somebody reflected to me, they're like, while you are partying every night, you think that other people are doing it with you, that you're like, oh, it's okay. But you're not noticing that it's different people. It's not the same people every night, but it's you that's the same every night. And I was like, You've got seven groups of friends for each night of the week. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, we are still going to class and we're still doing our things. And I was like, oh. Jason, do you ever sell plasma? No, I never sold plasma. Yeah, so. Yet. So for viewers who don't know, selling plasma is a very common way to fund uh, drug addictions. And it's it's really funny because you get bonuses for things at the plasma place. Really? Yeah, Yeah, like. Like, like if you like you can only go three times a week, but mm-hmm. if you hit all three, you get a little extra. Yeah. You get put into a raffle. I won an iPod shuffle. What? Yeah. Yeah. I won um, an iPod mini as well. It was there's like a birthday bonus. If you go to give plasma on your birthday, they give you like an extra forty bucks. Like I might go now. <laughs> My parents were so upset. They were like, if you need money, please just ask us. Don't do that. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so, so you're failing out of school. You're on academic probation. Is that the point where it's like, okay, maybe Nikki needs to go to rehab or no. kind of what What got <laughs> no. us there? I got suspended. I had to do a semester at home, a long semester is what Texas State told me. So then I got went back and um, I got into a legal issue, an altercation, and I was looking at, you know, going to prison and my option was to go to treatment or to go to prison and so I chose to go to treatment yeah. but it was a hard decision yeah. I actually asked them like well how long would I be in jail and they were like oh no you're going to prison, prison not jail. and so, I was like ah. are you cool with talking about the altercation <laughs> uh yeah I I was living in a place where I'd gotten a multiple noise complaints for partying and I had been told if I got one more noise complaint that I was going to be evicted. Were you like a woo girl? Like, woo! <laughs> <laughs> I was a girl who like liked the party. And so I wanted everyone to be around me. Okay, I so you would have people have over parties. all the time and yes. it wasn't just you. Yeah, yeah. Isolating and yelling. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just me and my <laughs> They're like, wow, just one person noise complaint. Um, so this last time I... The cops were called. I was in a blackout, and I didn't want um, to get another noise complaint. And so I refused to let the cops in, and they came in through the back door that I forgot to lock. Um, oh, did you fight with the cops? I did. Oh. I resisted arrest. Um, so, yes. Something <laughs> about college girls always feel like they can fight the cops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't fight cops even if no. you don't know they're cops. Yeah, don't do it. Not not a good... It saved my life, but like also don't do it, y'all. 
Um, so that is when my parents were like, okay, <laughs> yeah. This so is so this is about 2008. When this I is 2008. So when you went to yeah. treatment, you know, did you go in thinking like, okay, you know what, maybe I do have a problem. Or was just, I'm just Absolutely doing this thing not. to get out of. Yes. I was like, I don't want to go to prison and I'm just doing this until I can get out and go back to school. Did you go to Starlight or Laha? I went to Starlight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which my like fake cousin was actually there on the adolescent side, which was mind boggling. <laughs> I remember going to get my night meds and someone going, Nikki. And I was like, there's no way I know anyone in this hellhole. So I kept walking <laughs> like Nikki. And I was like, looked over. I was like my first week. So, you know, you're not fully like present in those moments. And I was like, oh my God. And I saw him and I was like, Cool. <laughs> cool. Family situation here. So so you're at Starlight and basically, you know, so you just had to go to treatment, right? They didn't require you to go to Sober House and all that kind of right. stuff. So then how did that end up happening? Um, My counselor told my parents about enabling Steve. Steve Marcy? Yep. Yeah. My mom loves, he called me a celestial fire and my mom loves that. And she like, <laughs> it gave her like hope, you know, when they were in such a dark place, my parents. And um, he told them that they needed to cut me off. Uh, and they did. They cut me off financially, which was like tragic for me. I had never had to support myself before. And uh, so they You're told all me, out of plasma. I know. There's not a, is there a plasma place? I don't think in, there's a plasma. Yeah, I don't think so in Kerrville. Um, also, I was asked not to sell plasma <laughs> That was another stipulation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got sent to a halfway house. That was the only thing that they would financially support. I went to Butterfly House, which ended up being a tragic situation with that halfway house. <laughs> oh, man, we could do a whole podcast about oh, the Butterfly tough. House. Yeah, and Phoenix period. House. Woof. Yes. Um, yeah, it was hard for sure. Those are two of our sponsors, so keep it oh, cool. Oh, okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I did the halfway house for, it was supposed to be three months, but it got cut a little short because of, you know, <clears throat> extenuating circumstances that were outside of my control. But I had to get a job and go to, you know, the 90 meetings in 90 days. And I... I was just, like, very angry. My nickname was Angry Nikki in Kerrville, which there was not another Nikki, so it was definitely not necessary to call me Angry Nikki. Um, but I was really angry when I first got sober. I was—I felt like I was a—I was treating myself as a victim of life circumstances, not, like, an active participant in my own yes. life situation. Yes. It was like— Y'all did this to me. Yeah, like, I just got dealt a shitty hand. Like, it was not my fault. I did nothing to do the service. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So eventually you bought into recovery. I did because I didn't want, like my parents were like, if you're sober for a year and that you, you like maintain, and I had to have three part-time jobs um, just to like pay for things. But they were like, if you can do this for a year, then we'll pay for you to go back to school. So I was like, okay, this isn't too terrible. I get to go back to school. But I didn't think recovery was going to be something long-term for me. Yeah. Um, and ultimately it wasn't. I, I mean, I I think I, I had two years and nine months um, the first time that I attempted sobriety. So one thing that, that I've always, that I noticed very early when I first started a counseling career, right, was that when I had clients that had both an eating disorder 
and a substance abuse issue. It was like a whack-a-mole thing. They were either doing really good with their eating but abusing the shit out of alcohol and drugs or vice versa. They were getting high, but their eating was fine. They weren't <laughs> binging or purging or any of yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So so is that kind of what happened with you? Is like Yeah. Yeah. My eating disorder like disappeared when I found my drug of choice and I was partying. Um and then when I went to treatment, it just like magically reappeared again. Right. Um and we had like full access to food at our treatment center. There was like a little kitchen that we could just go into at yeah. any time. And I started binging at that point um, and purging. So, and I think my roommate might have known at one point, but no one really said anything to me. I wasn't screened for an eating disorder. Like, I don't think any of that was on anyone's radar at substance use no, I mean, recovery then. Back in the day, substance abuse treatment was about alcohol and drugs. Yeah. yeah. Like, wouldn't even, mental health was not even that much of a consideration unless you were, like, on heavy psych meds. Yeah. And some cases alcohol or drugs because if you did drugs some places would be like well you could drink because that wasn't your problem <laughs> i had i had a therapist who was a heroin addict and every other weekend if they were good they would take him out to get beers shut up I swear to god yeah. wow that's wild <laughs> um, so okay so you get so you're in recovery mm -hmm. in, in that first big stint you're at Texas Tech. You get called out for the eating disorder. So what what ends up leading to the substance relapse? Is it that you got the eating disorder under control? And yeah, I, so I was like killing it at Tech. I were you up there with like Paul and Ashley and Colin? Yeah, and Ashley and I went together. Colin went a Hunter semester. Back. <laughs> yeah. um, Colin went a semester before us. Ashley and I went together. We did orientation together. We were good friends. Um, in in Lubbock, not so much Kirkville. Um, so I I was asked to go to a dietitian and an eating disorder dietitian, and bless her heart, she didn't know what to do with me. I started in at like this, I don't want to use numbers, um, but I started at this weight and I kept steadily dropping. And she kept saying, well, if you lose any more weight, I'm going to have to recommend another level of care. And so I would go in and, like, try to, like, put things in my pocket to, like, make sure that I didn't. But I was still, like, losing weight. And she would – she'd be like, well, we need to add to your meal plan. And so I'd be like, okay, I'll add, like, five almonds. <laughs> so I was, like, very resistant. I didn't want to. I remember, like, I didn't want to gain weight. And people – I remember, like – all the compliments I got for losing weight. Like, why in God's name would I want to, like, discount all of that and then gain weight again? Yeah. So I was really against it. But I was doing so well in every other area of my life. I had a 4.0. I had perfect attendance. I had a boyfriend. Yeah, it wasn't a healthy relationship, but I had one. I had sponsees. I had two sponsees. Um, I was working a program. Like, I just felt like I had... At all. And that's always a great way to justify unhealthy stuff, right? It's like, well, look, I'm doing good in A, B, C, and D. So, like, if E kind of sucks, <laughs> a little bit of E. And I, like, had friends that weren't sober. And that's the thing that I was like, look, I'm not like y'all. Like, I mm -hmm. can go to bars and have friends that are outside of the program and— I think I'm normal. And I was like, y'all have a hard time socializing outside of the sober community. And I don't struggle with that. I'm a very social person. So that was my thing. I was like, I think I was just really young and just my parents, I didn't party. A, well, I guess I did. I think I was trying to justify, like, I didn't party a lot in high school. I did. But 
not in the ways that my other friends yeah. did. So yeah, I party was like, enough in high school. Right. Yeah. So I was like, I never no, lived this in my was, car. I never smoked crack. I yeah. Know. I was like, yeah. well, this was just like me busting free and like trying to find my own identity. And so like this time will be different. And so I tried drinking and the bartender knew that I was sober because I'd go there and he was not, he didn't serve me. That's great. Yeah. I was actually wow. the owner of this bar and I had to go get somebody else at the bar to serve me who didn't know me. Wow. So now you were at tech in the recovery program, which they have this <laughs> yes. cool thing where like people who are in recovery think you got to have at least nine months. Like as long as you part agree to participate in their studies in the center, you get free college. So were you jeopardizing? Free college. They do full rights now, but they didn't then. So I, it, I don't know how they determined like who got what amount, but I got like five thousand a year. Um, Is there an age cap on that? There's not. No. I'm gonna go and sell some plasma and get a full ride scholarship once we're done. No, it's actually yeah. an amazing program. It really is. Yeah, it saved my life. So did you? Was was choosing to drink in any way jeopardizing oh, your college? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. So, All of it. Yeah. Um, they, I did it without them knowing. Um, and I got, someone told on me. It wasn't even me. I was going to pick up a dirty trip. Yeah. Um, mm. I had two years and nine months, so I was going to, I was planning on picking up a dirty three-year trip because I didn't want to jeopardize my scholarship. Yeah. And it's and funny when they told on, on me, yeah, yeah, they told on me and I got brought into the office and they didn't, <laughs> they weren't concerned about my drinking. They were wanting to send me to eating disorder treatment. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, like you're not Wait, what did you catch well. me for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, what? Um, and I was not doing well. I was blacking out when I'd stand up. I'd been into the hospital multiple times at this point. I was losing vision in my eye. Like when I was driving, I'd go like completely wow. black. It was so terrifying. Hair was falling out. I didn't have my period. Like it was just not going well for me. Basically um, like if you'd been on a bunch of drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Same, yeah, yeah. <laughs> same outcomes. Yes. Yeah. And um, I was just like so angry that they were even recommending that they medically withdrew me. Were they like eating disorder treatment or prison? <laughs> they back. did not give me, but they did say, if you don't go to treatment, then you cannot come back to school. Yikes. Turns out I wasn't allowed back to school anyways. They were like, please go finish school somewhere else. So I actually got to finish my last few hours at ACC, um, which is like unheard of your senior year. They want yeah. you to finish your hours, your senior year there, but they were just like, you're a liability. <laughs> um, so now that you, you are an eating disorder advocate now, correct? Yeah. Well, I'm actually an eating disorder therapist now, She's a too. therapist. But, okay. She's a therapist. Yes. But also, when when we first started talking, it was because she was doing all this stuff with the eating disorder walk yes. and the NAMI walk and, yeah. and doing that kind of advocacy stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So let's touch a little bit on that. What yeah. are some things that you would like to people to know about eating disorders that you think they may not. Yeah. Well, because, and I'm going to add an addendum to his question because I think there's a lot of addiction therapists who don't understand eating disorders. For there's sure. a lot of eating disorder therapists who don't understand addiction. Yes. Hence the nutritionist who couldn't figure out what the fuck you were doing. Yeah. Right? Uh -huh. she, she trusted you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, you have a really unique perspective as being trained and having the personal experience. So please tell us the things. <laughs> yeah, I think with both, there's um, this malnourishment in both areas. So with eating disorder, certainly, but also with substance use, like people aren't really, if you're struggling with substance use, you're 
probably not living your best life and taking care of, like, your food issues and, like, things to properly nourish your body, to hydrate, things like that. One of the biggest misconceptions about eating disorders is that you are underweight. So less than 6% of people are medically diagnosed as being underweight, which is, you know, everyone seems to think that there's this young, white, underweight is the picture of an eating disorder. And that's not the case. Um, More than 50% of people that have an eating disorder struggle with substance use disorder, which is wild. I had no idea it was that high. I think it's probably higher. It's just that people aren't really great at screening for these things. And so, and people, like you said, the whack-a-mole thing. So if they're going in for substance use treatment, they're probably going to protect this other part and vice versa. If they're going in for eating disorder, they're going to protect because for me, it was really hard doing both at the same time for the whack-a-mole reason because eating disorders are about emotion regulation when it comes down to it. And so taking away my coping mechanism with substance use, right? I couldn't escape anymore. I had to feel my feelings. And then taking away the other coping mechanism that I have to like not feel my feelings and I'm raw. I'm just like just all the feelings. Yeah, yeah, all of them. And I feel I'm already a super sensitive person. So now I'm feeling all of my feelings and so intensely. I have no skills to use. And my brain, of course, remembers that, oh, you have these things that can make you feel better quickly. And so it's really challenging to like not go to those things because I know that they work. And skill use takes time, right? And I have to tell my clients, I'm like, I know that you remember these things will help you feel better instantly. And the skill use, we have to practice it because it will work. And long term, it will work. These things, other things are not sustainable, right? So that's a a really tricky part. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. It is hard. And eating disorder treatment, like (laughs) if you think about substance use treatment, you are getting a break completely from temptations, from being around your substance. Eating disorder treatment, we're like, yo. You still have to eat. Yeah. Six times a day, too. So it's like you're doing all of the therapy and you're having the constant exposures that you're not having in substance use treatment. And if you have a history of substance use, then you tend to have this black and white thinking towards your eating disorder recovery, which really I've derailed me a lot. And I've noticed with my clients that I work with, it tends to derail them because they want to have perfect eating disorder recovery. Complete abstinence, right? Yeah, yeah they're like, 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 I purged one time, I fucked up. Yeah, and then it spirals. They're like, no, I ha- it's black and white. I'm either in eating disorder recovery or I'm not. And it's not that way. Do you deal with overeating as well? Yeah, so binge eating disorder, I definitely deal with, yeah. Um, I think the thing that I push back on is that there— Substance use and the world at large tends to be fat phobic, and the BMI is trash. I was going to ask you about the BMI. (laughs) Made by a statistician, made to measure populations over time, white men, right? Like, that's not very helpful. And then insurance comes in and is like, okay, well, we're going to just arbitrarily decide that this is health and this is not health. That's so wild. And we even use BMI in eating disorder treatment still. Because insurance requires us to. Um, so I'm, not great. There's things we got to do in, in substance treatment also just because insurance requires it. But um, what's interesting, though, is, you know, recovery at large, and we talk about this fairly often on the show, like has started to move towards this kind of gray. Like it's not as black and white as it used to be to yeah. where, you know, harm reduction, all these different kinds of yeah. things. So it's almost like they're kind of coming together in this idea that like 
recovery and health doesn't need to be uh, perfection. Right. Which is really cool. We're getting there. We're getting there. There's also this social justice component that my clients have that I didn't have that I really love. Like We talk more about that, yeah. I mean, my adolescents, they are able to acknowledge like, oh, that's so fat phobic or that's so diet culture, which I didn't have that knowledge and like society at large didn't wasn't really talking about things that were fat phobic and how we've internalized the stigma. I, yeah, I didn't have any of that information. And now it's, you know, all over social media. There's books, podcasts all about it. So Yeah, they've got language for all this stuff that we didn't have language for. Yeah, and not only that, but they're advocating for change, which is really cool. Yeah. Everybody has a voice now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is is really nice to see. So we are getting towards kind of running out of time. Um, and I feel like there's still like a bunch of other topics I want to touch on. Like, like I, w- I want you to tell us about like how eating disorder rehab is different from substance rehab because I know there's all kinds of like they watch you when you eat. And there's like mirrors yeah. to make sure you're not hiding shit. Like, we don't do the mirror thing. That's interesting. Um, we do. If have you seen the mirror thing before? I have not. Oh, yeah. No, I'm pretty good at like watching. I do meals with my patients, and I'm pretty good at noticing. Because I have the experience of, like, I hid food when I was in treatment, so, like, I know what to look for. Um, I know what eating disorder behaviors and rituals people have and the safety behaviors they have around food, so I know how to redirect around it in ways that some people might have to, like, you know, it takes a lot for them to learn and to identify. But it's I'm like, like, oh, like I did the this. tech who's in recovery that catches the clients doing shit. Yeah. You know, right. This is the non-recovery tech who's like, oh, he said he was going to call his mom. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, oh. I think it's a great, great opportunity for the listeners. If you have any questions regarding eating disorders, um, we'll put a link to to whatever you want to share and yeah. have you back on if we get enough questions. And, uh, yeah. you know, because there, I mean, we, we didn't even scratch the surface no. here on, on the know. things that we could talk about. I do but. want to tie a bow in your eating recovery journey because I know like your substance recovery journey there was some starts and stops Absolutely. so I'd like to hear yeah. about like when you finally got to what you feel now is like a healthy yeah. place around that like what that yeah. took or what that yeah. entailed yeah my psychiatrist in treatment because I worked for the eating disorder treatment center that I went to um, I went to the one in Denver, and now they have one here in Austin, and yes. I get to be a therapist. It's we send so you all people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people. It's really cool to be full circle. And my psychiatrist, when I was in treatment, he told me that my thoughts do not have to become actions. Okay. <laughs> so a, a normal person that might be like, yeah, duh. But for me, I was so spontaneous. I'm really um, – I am have low harm avoidance and high novelty seeking, which – my therapist calls it a nightmare, and I'm like, yeah, it kind of is. Um, so just, like, loving chaos all the time. And he was like, recovery is in the pause. And those two things were, like, really just, like, mind-blowing for me. I wasn't able to put them into place at that point. I was 24, and I remembered it, though. And so it took me three years out of, like, going back and forth. I went to multiple eating disorder treatment centers. I got kicked out of a few. Um before I was able to actually put those into place. And it felt like what happened is I got into this point where I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that is how I actually got to eating disorder treatment the first time. And so I was getting back down to that place and I was like, I can't go back to treatment again. I've already done this so many times. And I knew I had all the information and I had all the support. My parents were su- helping support because eating disorder therapists, for so many reasons, a lot of them don't take insurance. And so, my parents were helping support that. And um, 
I just was like, okay, I've got to white knuckle it. And I don't recommend this to my clients ever, but I was like, for a year, let's just, uh, my treatment team was like, let's just try it for a year. Let's, you do the meal plan and do as we say for a year. And I was like, okay, but if I don't feel any better, nothing changes and I'm going back to this. And they were like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, And a year into it, I was like, still upset, still not, like body image did not change. I still hated my body, but I was able to like still appreciate life in a different way that I wasn't able to. I wasn't hyper fixated on, you know, oh, I'm eating this. Well, that means that I have to go do this exercise right afterwards. I was able to be a little bit more present. And I noticed the spontaneity that I had before kind of coming back a little bit into my life. And so I decided to keep going on this path and it was not easy. And there were a lot of, um, it was not black and white, you know, it's a lot of gray area that you're trying to swim through, like trying to figure out like, okay, am I actually hungry or am I eating because I'm upset? And that was a hard thing for me to understand. Like, does it actually really matter? Then like trying to figure out what, what am I using this as a coping mechanism? Food is a coping mechanism. Absolutely. And it's okay to have it as a coping mechanism. I tell my clients that all the time because I work with binge eating disorder with my adults. And they don't like hearing that. I'm like, we just don't want it to be your only coping mechanism. Because I think back to like the pandemic, I was going to Amy's ice cream twice a week. <laughs> it was like comforting. That doesn't sound that bad to me. No. Right. It was comforting <laughs> yeah. and nostalgic to me. And I knew that I was using it as a coping mechanism because I was so isolated. I was living alone. I was doing virtual work. I didn't see people or talk to another person for in person for like weeks at a time. Yeah. So Amy's was like the one place where I got to see people and right. they even got to know my order and like recognize <laughs> me with my mask on. I was like... I have reached peak Austin. <laughs> okay, so I need to get some free professional advice here. So I am, and tell me if this is a common thing, mm-hmm. throughout the day, I am super well-behaved as far as the things that I eat. Mm-hmm. And I like, this is going. I will work out, I will yeah. eat all day and maybe and have a the, shake. the night? Not even at the end of the night. I will fall asleep. Wake back up, go, and just be like, I'm just going to get a Topo Chico. Next thing, I'm eating the shredded cheese. I'm eating everything in the fucking refrigerator. Okay, same same question. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, because I'm like, I got my protein shake. I got my greens today. Uh I got, you know, I've been watching the carbs all day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. God forbid Gabby gets some Thin Mints or Girl Scout cookies, and I see those in the freezer like entire sleeve easily. Yeah. And maybe I'll dip it in case. Help us. Yeah. Okay. So what I, there is something that's called night eating syndrome, which is not what I think that y'all have. It's a circadian rhythm uh, discrepancy, which usually we see with like shift workers, which is again, not what I think that y'all have. What I think might be happening is that y'all aren't eating enough throughout the day. So the biggest predictor of binging is restriction. So when I see clients doing that, it's either they're they're depriving themselves of like, say it is cheese that they're binging on. It's like, well, are you allowing yourself to eat cheese? And usually it's like cakes or donuts or things like that that they end up binging on. And I'm like, is that a food that you've told yourself is a no food? Yeah, I mean, if I had it in the house, I'd binge on it. Yeah. And that's the thing is that uh, if we, okay. we go into deprivation mindset when we're told that we can't have something, we then to put it on a pedestal. Like feast or famine kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. Oh. So I should go get a cake right now for lunch, and then later I'll be okay. 
<laughs> I wouldn't say like eating the whole thing for lunch, but I do. That's think, what I heard. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, so, anyway, thanks for coming. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> One of the things that we do is exposure response prevention, and so with like my binge food was peanut butter, and so my treatment center they had me eating peanut butter at almost every meal. And it was exhausting, but it taught me that I could eat this normally, that it didn't have to be on a pedestal, that it's just like a normal food. So it desensitized it for me. Um, And having it at home, though, made it challenging because I did mess up a few times. And in my head, I was like, oh, well, that shows that I'm addicted to it. But that's not what was happening. Relapse. I got to pick up a a newcomer (laughs) chip. Yeah. (laughs) But what really was happening is that I just have to like, you have to Continue to teach your brain that this is something that's normal. Oh, okay. got to wrap in five. All yeah. right. Yeah, we got to wrap in five. All right. I yeah. guess it's rapid, rapid fire, fire question, question time. time. It's rapid fire question time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to start off with a classic rapid fire question. I hope it's not insensitive, but it's a classic oh, one man. we do. I'm sorry. She talked about ice cream first. Okay. Um, ben and Jerry's comes to you, and they want to make a Nikki flavor Ben and Jerry's. Mm-hmm. What do you call it, and what do you put in it? I say, let's go to Amy's ice cream, and we're getting the Oreo, which is the Mexican vanilla with Oreos combined. That is what we're doing. And what Sorry, do Ben it? and Jerry's. Um, I love Amy's ice cream only. <laughs> I, love it. I literally refuse to go to any other Ice cream. I'm that is very. Maybe awesome. we get a sponsorship yeah. out of this one. We'll send it to the we'll, we'll treat info the at Amy's. We'll treat the yeah. yeah. Okay. Stephen Odom likes um. What is it? Jenny's. Yeah. And I was like, no, dude, I can't Fuck even. Fuck out of here. Yeah, I can't I'm even. It's eight. right across the street from Amy's on uh, South Congress. Yeah. Right. Get out of here. Get out of here. Amy's. You'll cross the street. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Amy's without only. a crosswalk. Yeah. I might get hit by a car, but <laughs> Amy's. Okay. So so you're out. Doing your thing, either driving at the store. What is one thing that somebody can do to bring angry Nikki back? <laughs> um, make a comment about somebody else's body or food choices. That will pretty much set me off, especially if it's towards a child or if they're making comments about their body in front of their kid. Mm. Like, Ugh. Ugh. yeah, gets me. All right. Uh, what is... Your go-to music for when you're having a rough day is your comfort music. Oh, my God. Okay, cursive. And I was one of the top 100 listeners. I listened to, like, it's it was disgusting. I don't remember the, the hours, but a lot of cursive. So it's a deceptive stat. There's only 100 people that who listen to cursive. Yeah. <laughs> cursive is a pretty deep cut, yeah. <laughs> and I, I even tagged cursive and Tim Kasher, the lead singer, in the story I posted on Instagram, and he saw it. And I was like, oh. <gasps> Fangirling, yeah. <laughs> I don't listen to music past high school. Like I just got stuck. Arrested in this development high with their, situation. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Time travel vacation. You go anywhere, any time period, where and when. Wow. I would really love to go to Iran. Um, I don't know what time period. Maybe when my mom was a kid, so I can see what it was like for her growing up. Because I only have her. So like the seventies, sixties. She was there in the sixties. Yeah. Oh man, all my questions are food related. <laughs> it's okay. I love food. Go ahead. Okay, you can only pick one for the rest of your life: pizza, or tacos. 
Ooh, tacos. Nice. I'm lactose intolerant. That's so the right it's, answer. It's a little tough, yeah. <laughs> Taco deli, uh, doña sauce yeah. on anything. Yeah, for sure. All day. Yeah. All right. All right. Last thing. We, we, we told you we'd have this moment yeah, where you know, yeah. it's your opportunity, whatever you want to plug, if you want to leave a message for, for our viewers, yeah. whatever you want to do. Yeah. You don't have to have a diagnosis of an eating disorder to improve your relationship with food or body. There's tons of free support groups out there. I run one for adults. Uh, you can find it on my website. Umbrella, umbrella psychotherapy.com. I'm running an eight week adolescent skills group starting in February for ages 13 and 18, which I didn't think adolescents were going to be my jam, and they are. I really love working with the families and the kids, and I love adults, substance use, and eating disorder. Like, if they have those two combined, I'm like, yes, this is my perfect client. It's a unicorn, right? There. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's, you know, because some people don't want to work with eating disorders because they're like, oh, it's so hard. And I'm like, yes, but I know that recovery is possible. I have been there. I have done it. I know how hard it is. And I get to hold that hope of recovery for them until they believe it for themselves, which is a magical feeling. Love it. Well, thank you again for taking the time out today to to come talk to us um, and, and to all our loyal listeners. Uh, thank you for watching and listening. Don't forget to like, follow, share, subscribe, leave comments, tell your friends. Ask questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we 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 lost a lot of the interaction when we got off of the Facebook. So maybe you know, start throwing them on Bring the back. on the Spotify or whatever. Um, and as we like to say here on Toxicology, there's a thousand ways in and a thousand ways out. And we always we make eye contact. When and we, we hope it. you find yours. That was really romantic. <laughs> <laughs>